Welcome to Co-Recursive, where we bring you discussions with thought leaders in the world of software development. I am Adam, your host. Um, so, it's, so it is sort of asking them to give things up. But uh, the thing is, what you get in return is exactly this guaranteed memory safety right and this guaranteed freedom from data races um and uh and, and it's just this huge win writing secure performant multi-threaded code is very difficult today i talked to jim blandy about rust a programming language that is trying to make this a lot easier we also talk about why it's so hard to write secure code. Jim works on Firefox, and his insights into the difficulty of writing secure code are super interesting. I also asked Jim about Red Bean Software, a software company that refuses to sell software at all. Jim Blandy is the uh, co-author of Programming Rust, among many other things. Uh, Jim, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. I have your book. And, uh, like, I really hoped I had, I would have uh, made it a long way through it before, before I talked to you, but, uh, I can see the bookmark. It's about, it's about like a quarter of the way through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It ended up a lot longer than we wanted it to be. <laughs> oh, I don't think it's, it's uh, your fault that I haven't made it <laughs> very yeah. far. What we so, had in mind originally, we wanted to do something that was more like, you know, K and R, like this slim volume mm. that just covers exactly what you need. Um, but basically Rust is just, it's a big language that, you know, is trying to address the things that people need. And it ended up just being, we took a little while to cover that. Yeah. It's uh, it's not, it's not a small language, I wouldn't say. Yeah. So what, what is Rust for? What, what is it targeting? Well, um, I mean, the, the funny answer is that it's targeting all those bitter C++ programmers who are sick and tired of writing security holes. <laughs> uh, basically, J Jason and I, my co-author Jason and I, we both uh, have worked on Mozilla's SpiderMonkey JavaScript engine. And that is a big pile of C++ code. It's got, uh, you know, it's got a compiler front end. It's got a bytecode interpreter. It's got two JITs. Um, it's got a garbage collector, which is um, compacting and, and incremental and generational. And working on SpiderMonkey is kind of hair-raising. Right, because Firefox, you know, even as uh, one of the, you know, it's not the lead browser, uh, it, we still have hundreds of millions of users, and that means that when we make a mistake in the code, uh, we can expose just just a huge number of people um, to you know to potential to potential exploits, and that, and you know, and, and of course, you know, as you know, when you're working in this field or, you know, and this is true, I think of all the browsers, you know, you get the CVEs, things get published, you find out about exploits. Um, and so it really is very humbling, right? And so whether you are writing the code, which is going to go out in front of all these millions of people, or whether you are reviewing the code, right? You know, somebody has finished their patch and they flag you for review. Um, you know, if you're the reviewer, you're sort of like the last line of defense, right? This is the last chance for a bug to get caught before mm -hmm. it becomes, you know, becomes an exploit. Um, and, you know, and you sort of, you sort of 
you sort of get used to it. You sort of accept that this is the way that this is the way things are done. And then you start working in Rust. I mean, I just was curious about Rust because uh, the original creator of the language, uh, Graydon Hoare, is a, a personal friend of mine. We, we worked together at Red Hat. And um, modern Rust has gone far beyond what, what Graydon started with. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's his language anymore. But, uh, you know, but I was curious. I've been following its development since the beginning. And so I was curious about it. And um, once I really started getting into it, I realized that this is systems programming where I, as the programmer, am in control of exactly how much memory I use. I have full control over how, how things are laid out in memory. Um, you know, the, the basic operations of the language correspond closely to the basic operations of the processor. So as a systems programmer, I have all the control that I need, but I don't have to worry about uh, memory errors and uh, and and memory safety, um, and just like like I say, you know, you, you when you're working on a, a, a security critical C code base like like Jason and I have been, um, you sort of get used to it, right? Mm-hmm. And you sort of internalize that like this, this is just you know the standard that you're being held to is actually perfection, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, because that's that's what it is, right? You know, the smallest mistake, and and these people, you know, the, when you when you read about the exploits that people show off at Black Hat, it's just amazing, just the ingenuity and work and just blood, sweat, and tears that people put into 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 breaking things is really impressive. Um, you know, you've internalized that, and then suddenly you work in Rust, and that weight is lifted off your shoulders, wow. <laughs> and it is like. It is like getting out of a bad relationship, right? <laughs> you know, you just sort of got used to being like just treated badly. And then suddenly somebody is reasonable to you and you're like, holy cow, I am never going to do that ever again. <laughs> right. Um, because it's really, and then, and then the, then the, the next thing is that, uh, when you get to work on, um, concurrent code, in Rust, right? Actually, trying to use, uh, trying to take a problem distributed across multiple cores. Um, Rust is constructed so that when your program compiles, once your program compiles, um, it is uh, free of data races by construction. Um, you know, assuming that you're not using unsafe code. And uh, it, you know, in in C everybody thinks that they're multi-threaded code is fine, right? You know, everybody understands what a mutex is and how it works. It's mm-hmm. not, the, the primitives are not difficult to understand at all. Um, but, um, you know, then you, you, end up, you end up getting surprised by what's actually going on in your code when you have to work on it. Um, we had uh, one of the engineers here at Mozilla Firefox is a heavily multi-threaded program. I think when you start up, there's like 40 or 50 threads that get, that get going. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's the, the, the garbage collector does, does stuff off thread. Um, the JavaScript compiler will, will push, push uh, compilation work off to a separate thread. Um, we do uh, I.O., like, for example, when a tab is trying to write something to, to you know, local storage, um, that I.O. Is, is often pushed off to, uh, an off, uh, to, 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 a, to a worker thread, and it's sort of handled asynchronously on the main thread. Um, so it's a very heavily multi-threaded program. So anyway, so we had an engineer uh, here at 
Mozilla who decided that he was going to use um, TSAN, the, um, the thread sanitizer tool, to look for data races, to actually look at our code and um, observe, uh, you know, how well we were doing in in keeping data properly isolated, we keep data properly synchronized. Um, and what he found was that in every case where Firefox uses threads, we had data races. Oh wow! I mean, so not mo- not not most every single case. So um, yeah, that's kind of astounding. So let's back up. Well, so so yeah, what's yeah. a data race? Oh, okay. So. Um, a data race is when you have one thread uh, write to a memory location, and then another thread reads it, um, but there is no synchronization operation that occurs between those two. That's not like the, the, no, nobody releases a new text, and the other person acquires the new text. Or, uh, you know, the, the write isn't uh, atomic, um, or, uh, you know, there isn't like a sort of a message sent, right? There, there are any number of primitives the language provides that... that ensure uh, memory synchronization. And the, the reason this is an issue, it's an issue for, for two reasons. Um, one is that uh, whenever you have any kind of non-trivial data structure, the way it, they're always implemented is you, you have a method, right, um, or, you know, or a function, just any operation on that data structure. Um, and the method will temporarily relax the invariance that that data structure is built on do the work, and then put the invariance back into place. For example, if you're just trying to push an element on the end of a vector, mm-hmm. right? Um, usually it will write the new element to the end of the vector, and then it will increment the vector's length, mm-hmm. right? Well, at that midpoint between those two operations, the vector's got this extra element that it's supposed to own, but the length doesn't reflect that, right? So there's this momentary relaxation of the invariance of the type that the, that the length actually is accurate. Um, or even more so, uh, if you are appending an element to a vector and the vector has to reallo- reallocate its buffer. So first, it's going to allocate a larger buffer in memory. Next, it's going to copy over the existing elements to that new buffer, right? At which point, there are actually two copies of every mm-hmm. element, right? Which is which is kind of strange, right? Which one is the owning copy? Which one is live? Um, and then it uh, frees the old buffer, and then it sets the vector's pointer to point to the new buffer, and, you know, like that, right? So that's a, a more complicated operation, where in the midst of this operation, the vector is actually in this wildly incoherent state, mm-hmm. right? But by the time the method returns, the vector is guaranteed to be back uh, in, in, in shape and ready to use again, right? And so when you have data races, getting back to data races, the problem with unsynchronized access is that it means that you have you can have one thread observing the states of your vector, or really of any non-trivial type, while it is in the midst of being modified by some other thread. And so whatever invariance the vector's methods are counting on holding in order to be in order to function correctly mm-hmm. may not hold. Right. And so um, so that's 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 the uh, that's sort of the language level view of things, um, but then modern processors, of course, uh, add even further complication to the mix, where um, each processor will have its own cache, and 
although they do have, you know, cache coherency protocols trying to keep everything synchronized, it turns out that even Intel processors, which try to make fairly strong promises about uh, memory coherence, um, it's still visible that um, each processor will queue up writes to main memory. That is, if you are uh, one core on a multi-core machine and you're doing a whole bunch of writes to memory, those writes actually get queued up and uh, reads on that same core will actually, you know, if you try to read a location that you just wrote to, it'll say, oh, wait, I see in my store queue that, uh, that I just wrote to this. And so I'm going to give you the value that I just wrote, even though the other cores will not have seen those writes yet. Um, and so the other thing that synchronization ensures is that at the processor level, um, the memory that you are about to read is guaranteed to see the values that were written by uh, the processor that that, uh, that, that, that wrote to them, assuming that, that both have executed the proper synchronization. So a data race is a write to a location uh, by one processor, by one thread, and then a read from that location from another thread without proper synchronization. And it can cause invariance to be violated, and it can cause, you can encounter memory coherence errors. The, the hardware uh, thing you mentioned is interesting, and maybe it's a bit of divergence, but so how does that work? So if there's writes queued up to like a certain sector or something and, and you are reading from it, like does it does it block until those writes go through? Is that what you're saying? Or um, Okay, so, so this is something that, so the, the processors change over time um, and the different processors have different uh, details about exactly how they do this. Um, and so I... I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to accurately describe like current Intel processors, but um, this is as I remember it. Um, what you've got at the at the basic level, you've got uh, the caches that are communicating with each other about what they have cached locally. Like for example, um, uh, if if nobody has read a particular block of memory, then then that's then that's fine, right? But when um, when one core brings a particular block of memory into its cache, it'll actually uh, mark that and say, okay, I've got this, but I haven't written mm. to it yet. And it's okay for other cores to read that memory. And so maybe all the cores, maybe it's a big block of read-only memory, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's strings, uh, uh, static strings or something like that. And so all the cores can bring copies of that memory into their caches and then use it. However, before a core is able to write to a block of memory, it says, I need exclusive access to that. And it actually broadcasts out on, the, the, on this local bus for, for, the, for, the, for the purpose of this kind of communication and says, okay, all you other cores, I'm about to write to this block of memory. Please evict it from your caches and mark it as exclusively mm -hmm. mine. Right? And so all the other cores, they, they kick out that, that block from their... Uh, uh, from, from their from their from their caches, they say we don't we don't know what's in this lock of memory anymore. Only that guy knows what's in it. So then that processor that's obtained exclusive access to that block of memory can do what it, do what it pleases, right? And then, in order for the other cores to actually re even read from that memory now, they have to go and get a copy of it back from or you know force the 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 core that was writing to it to flush it's what it had back to main memory. And so then it goes back into the shared state. Um, and so they call it the messy protocol. It's M E S I, which is like, uh, geez, I can't remember what it is. Um, but like, um, 
E stands for exclusive. There are four letters of the names of the four states that a particular block can be in. And E is exclusive access, which is when you're writing something. S is for shared access, uh, when you're when it's actually just everybody has the same copies and everybody's just reading from it. And I think I is invalid, where like somebody else is writing to it, and so your copy of it is bogus. Um, so that's just keeping the caches coherent. But then the other thing is that uh, writes are a lot slower than reads. Mm-hmm. And so each core has a queue of the writes to memory that it has made, that it is waiting to write out to main memory, mm-hmm. right? And so if you do a whole bunch of stores, your, your, your store queue will get, will get filled up uh, with, with the list of these things going out. Um, and uh, if, you, if, if the core which has done the writes tries to read, then certainly it, it knows what the current values of things are. Um, but the other cores um, can't see it yet, can't see those rights yet. And so it is the, the way that you can get incoherence, the way that you can end up with uh, different cores having a different idea of what order things happened in is when one core gets a result out of its store queue and then the other core gets the result out of, um, out of, uh, out of main memory. Um, and so you can end up with different cores seeing writes to memory seem to happen in a different order. Um, and the, the history of this is actually really interesting. For a long time, the Intel would have sections of their processor manuals where they tried to explain you know, how this worked, and they would make these very friendly promises like, oh, yes, everything's coherent. Don't worry. You just <laughs> do the writes you want to, and everybody sees them. Um, and then there was this group... Uh, I, I could I could look up the reference later if you're curious, but they they, they there was this group uh, in um, it's either Cambridge I think or Oxford, anyway, uh, a very theoretically inclined group who basically said we're going to actually make a formal model of you know the memory uh, that we're actually going to formalize the memory model that that Intel has has well, given like us formalize here. it in, in and what, then like in. As like a, a like sort of, they yeah. made up a little logic that says which executions are acceptable and which executions are permitted by this, and which executions are not permitted by this. Now, now again, the the specification doesn't say exactly what happens; it just says what the rules are. So it says this could never happen; this mm-hmm. might happen. So it identifies a set of acceptable executions, not a specific. It doesn't tell you exactly which one the processor is going to do, right? It just specifies a set of acceptable executions or a predicate that you could run on an execution to say this was real or this is not acceptable, right? So, so anyway, so what, what this what this research group did is they said, well, let's take them at their word, and we're going to write tests. We're going to use this, you know, formal. Uh, we're going to use this this uh, this specification that we've written mm-hmm. that we made up, right? Because all we got is English to work with, and we're going to generate a ton of tests that we will run on the actual processor to see if the processors actually behave the way they're claims to behave in the manual. And I mean, you can tell obviously if the answer <laughs> is no, right? <laughs> that that Intel themselves in their own documentation did not correctly describe the behavior of their own processors. Um, and so, and so this group, uh, and the great thing about it, what was really powerful was that their techniques allowed them to just, you know, generate lots of tests and then find ones that, that failed. And, um, and then, and then they were able to reduce them. So when they published, 
Um, they had very short examples. If you run this sequence of instructions on one core and this sequence of instructions on another core, you will observe these results, which are forbidden mm -hmm. by the spec, right? So it was really nice. It was really just a, like, here's your book, you know? Um, and uh, basically what they found was that in general, yes, uh, the, 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 the messy protocols do work as advertised. Um, but the thing that you really have to add, the thing that you have to put it, you add to the picture to make it accurate is, um, the, the, the store cues, the right cues. Because um, if you have a right that and, hasn't happened uh, yet, then you're going to have this. If you have a right, if you have a right that you've done, if you have a, if you've just done a right, you will see that right before mm. other cores will see it. Yeah. So anyway, this is the kind of thing, right? I, just to bring this back to Rust, um, this is the kind of thing where, you know, it sort of it sort of raises, uh, I think, the, the a programmer's sort of macho hackles, right? You say, well, you know, that seems pretty tough for most people, <laughs> but I can handle it, right? You know, everybody says that, right? And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that. I catch myself thinking that. And it's not true. <laughs> You're not up to the task of being perfect. And so to have a language where you can start... Uh, you know, pushing your algorithm out across multiple cores, pushing your code out to run uh, in multiple threads, and just know that, you know, you may have bugs, but they're not going to be these bugs that, that you know, that, that uh, uh, depend on exactly the order in which memory writes happened and the exact instructions that the compiler selected and things like that, uh, you know, is just a huge win. So. Data races, data races are, they're out. Yeah, data races are out. So, so how? Um, well, so uh, the key idea of Rust, which is something, and this is, I think, really the thing that most programmers get hung up on when they learn it, um, is that Rust takes control of aliasing. And by aliasing, I mean uh, the ability to reach the same piece of memory under two different sort of names, under two different expressions, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the example that I give in the book um, is, uh, I actually give a C++ example, right? Um, and I say, okay, you've got, this is C++, mind you, this is not Rust. Um, so you got int x, right? And, and it's, it's mutable, right? It's, an or, it's not const int x, it's just int x, right? And then you take a const pointer to it. So I say const int star x, or star p, right? Mm -hmm. I've got a const int pointer p, and I say, you know, equals ampersand x. So I've got a const int pointer to a non-const x. Now, the way C++ works, um, you cannot assign now to star p, Right. If you try to, you know, assign a variable to star p, or you know, use the increment operator on it, or something like that, then that's a that's a type error. Um, you're forbidden from using uh, p to to modify the reference or the pointer. Um, but you can assign to x, no problem, right? And so you can go ahead and change the value of x anytime you want. And so it's not the case that just because p is a pointer to a constant int that the integer it points to is constant, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? How, how perverse is that, right? I mean, like, what does const mean if it can change? Okay, but the thing is, I want to make clear that there are uses for this kind of thing, right? It is pretty useful to say, well, through this pointer, I'm not going to change this value, right? So, so I'm not saying it's useless, but, uh, but it is kind of, 
you know, not what you expect. And so, but if you think about what it would take to fix that, mm-hmm. right, to say, well, if, if I'm going to say that, you know, that this pointer to this thing, uh, that this point, this is a really a pointer to a constant thing, that would mean that for as long as that pointer P exists, a pointer to a constant, that all other access or that all other modification of the thing that it points to has to be forbidden, mm-hmm. right? You have to basically, as long as P is pointing to X, you have to make sure that X can't be modified, right? And so that's what I mean by aliasing, that star P, that is dereferencing the pointer P, mm-hmm. and X are both things that you can write in your program that refer to the same location, right? Um, and this, this kind of aliasing can arise under pretty much any circumstance, right? Anytime you have, you know, two paths through the heap that all, that, that all arrive at the same object, right? Anytime you have a shared object, right, in, in the graph of objects, um, that's two ways to get to the same location. And there will generally be two different expressions that you could write to refer to the same object, right? So JavaScript lets you do this. Java lets you do this. Basically, every language mm-hmm. lets you... Uh, create aliases. Um, and what Rust does is it actually restricts your ability to use pointers um, such that it can tell when something is aliased and it can say, okay, for this period, for this portion of the program, this these, these objects are reachable by... Uh, basically, there, there's, there's, there's uh, two kinds of pointers. There's shared pointers and then there's uh, there's uh, there's shared references and there's mutable references. So it'll say these objects are reachable by shared references, and thus they must not be changeable, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you know not just that you can't change those values through those shared pointers, but you know that nobody else can change them either. So it's really powerful when you have in Rust if you have um, a shared reference to an int you know that int will never change. If you have a shared reference to a string, you know that string will never change. If you have a shared reference to a hash table, you know that no entry in that hash table will ever change while you have that shared reference, as long as you have that shared reference. And so once that okay. reference goes out of scope, then then changes could happen. Exactly. 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 Um, and then the other kind of reference is a mutable reference, right? Where what it says is you have the right to modify this, but nobody else does. Right? Nobody else has the right to even see it. And so a mutable reference is like, it's basically, it's a very exclusive kind of pointer. So, so when you have a mutable reference to a hash table, nobody else can touch that hash table while you have it. And that's statically guaranteed. It's part of the type rules. It's guaranteed by the type rules around mutable references. Um, and so you, you, know, you can imagine that, that uh, any type system which can guarantee this thing about like, oh, this there's nothing else, there's no other live way in the system to even refer to the referent of this mutable pointer. That's a pretty powerful type mm-hmm. system. And, um, you know, we're look, working through the implications of that, I think, is where most people uh, stumble learning Rust. Um, that, that there is this strict segregation between shared references where you, where you have shared immutable access um, and where you have mutable references where it is exclusive access. So there's a strict segregation between sharing and mutation. And uh, the the way that Rust accomplishes that is, I think, really novel, and it's something people aren't uh, used to. And honestly, when you tell... Uh, I, I've, I, had, I was having lunch with a, a, a very accomplished 
programmer uh, who just an old friend we hadn't talked in years. Um, and uh, we, we were talking about Rust, and he says, "Yeah, but but I can't create cycles. I mean." I, I'm a programmer. I know exactly what I want to do with those cycles. I want to have data structures that are that are arbitrary graphs, and I need those data structures. And Rust won't let me make them, and so I'm not interested. Um, and so I, I think he's I think he's wrong, but, but I think he's making a making a poor choice. But he is correct in his assessment that basically Rust really is asking you to get, give up something that is just a, such a fundamental tool that most programmers have have you know just internalized uh, and and they've learned to think in those terms um, so it's so it is sort of asking them to give things up but uh, the thing is what you get in return is exactly this guaranteed memory safety right and this guaranteed freedom from data races um, and, uh, and and it's just this huge win uh, so the the what I'm, what I, the way Rust works when it does work is when you can take that. I think I, I mentioned the, uh, the programmer machismo. I want to, I want a gender neutral term for that, but like basically the programmer's <laughs> yeah. pride, right? The programmer's like that, the little bit of little confidence that you've got, right? You want to flip that from people saying, oh, I can handle, you know, data races, I can handle, you know, unsynchronized memory access, no problem, right? You want to flip them from thinking that to thinking, oh, I can write my code in this restricted type system, mm. right? You want to say, you want to make them say, I can feel, I, I can handle, I can get things done, even though Rust is restrictive, right? I can overcome these things. I can take this, uh, this limited, uh, you know, buttoned down system and make maybe, it safe. maybe people just shouldn't be so invested in their own pride i, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm not optimistic about that ever so, happening but one um, thing is it sounds like what you're talking about right is uh it's like changing the relationship you have with the compiler i mean i think some people view a compiler as like much. a teacher with like a ruler that hits you on your hands like don't do that but there, yeah. there's an alternative yeah. way where maybe it's more like an assistant that is yeah yeah yeah, and what's what's going on a lot? Uh, what's going on a lot with Rust is that your debugging time is getting moved from runtime, right, to compile time. That is the time that you would spend chasing down pointer problems in C plus plus. You instead spend in negotiation with the compiler about about your borrows and about your lifetimes. Uh, and and so and the thing about it is the difference is that tests only cover a selected set of executions. My tests cause the program to do this; it runs it through its paces in this specific way. Whereas types cover every possible execution. Definitely, um... right. And so that's the property that really makes it wonderful for concurrency, which is that you know with concurrency you have to just give up on your tests really exercising all possible, uh, you know, executions um, because, you know, the, the, the rate at which different cores run the code and the, the, how the threads get scheduled and what else happened to be competing for your cache at the time, none of that stuff is really uh, something that you can get a grip on. And, um, and so having a type system that is all possible executions are okay is exactly what, what the doctor ordered. So is there, 
uh, are we at risk of there just being a problem with the type system? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, if the type system isn't sound, then then you lose, right? Or we lose. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, so so I uh, so so one nice thing is that uh, the the people who are sort of the lead designers of the type system right now, as as I understand it, are. Um, Aaron Turin and, and Nico Matsakis. And in particular, Nico, Nico is the one who had this insight about, you know, hey, we have the possibility of really separating sharing and mutation and keeping those two things completely segregated. And that's that's what I think is really the, the defining characteristic of Rust, um, or rather the defining mm-hmm. novelty of Rust. Um, uh, and so they work... Uh, when they talk about type systems, they're playing with um, with PLT Redux, which is a which is a system from the from the PLT group um, that that made uh, Racket and, mm. and, and all that stuff um, uh, for looking at for playing with formal systems and looking at derivations in formal systems. Uh, but they're not proving things about it. There is then a project uh, called Rust Belt. Um, I mean, there's also a conference called Rust Belt, but uh, Rust Belt is a project um, at a German uh, university where they're actually trying to formalize Rust. It's a research program where they say, okay, we are a group of people and we're going to work on um, finding uh, formal models of the Rust type system and and Rust semantics. Um, And... um, uh, in, in, in particular, there's a guy Ralph Young who uh, is is really taking this on, and um, he is working on machine verified proofs of the soundness of Rust's type system. Now it turns out that there are um, aspects of Rust that make this very interesting and challenging and turn into something that just has never been done before. In particular. Um, all of Rust is built on a foundation of unsafe code. Um, and unsafe code is code where um, it uses primitive operations whose safety the compiler cannot check, right? These operations, they still have, you know, they still can be used safely, right? They just have additional rules in order to be used safely that you as the programmer can, can know. So, so what do you mean to say that it's built on a foundation of unsafe code? Well, um, the Rust vector type, for example, um, is the, the vector type itself is is safe to use, right? If you are writing Rust code and you use you know the vector vector type, it's it's this fundamental type in the in the standard library. It's like you know it's the list of it, it would be ha- it would be the, the analog of Haskell's list or something like that. You can't get away with mm-hmm. you can't not use it, um, and. Uh, and so, basically, if you are using vector, then you are at no risk, right? The, the, any mistakes that you make using vectors will be caught by the type checker and the borrow checker, right? At compile time. At compile time. So Rust is so so vector is safe to use. Vec is safe to use, but the implementation of vec uses operations whose correctness the compiler ca- itself cannot be sure of. Mm. Right. In particular, um, when you want to push a value onto the end of a vector, right? What that's doing is that's taking this section of memory, 
which like again you got to imagine the the vector has a big buffer right and it's got some spare space at the end of the buffer and you're going to push a new value you can say you're going to push a string onto the end of that vector right so that mm-hmm. strings and well okay that's a you're you're transferring ownership of the vector from you're transferring ownership of the string from uh, you know whoever's calling the push method uh, to the vector itself and so there's a bit of uninitialized memory at the end of the vector's buffer or the in the towards the end of the vector's buffer, which is now having a string moved into it, mm-hmm. right? And in order for that to be correct, in order to make sure that you don't end up with two strings thinking they both same own the same amount of memory, and in order to make sure that you don't that you don't leak the memory, um, uh, you, it has to be guaranteed, or it has to be the case, it has to be true that the memory that you're moving the string into is uninitialized, right? And whether or not whether or not the location that something gets pushed onto is initialized or not depends on the vector being, you know, being correct. Oh, okay. Right. That is the, the, the vector, the vector knows the address of its buffer. It knows its length and it knows its capacity, right? The actual in memory size of the buffer. And so the vector has to have a checked that there is spare capacity, that the length is less than the capacity. Right. And that length has to have been, accurately maintained through all the other operations on the on the vector if there is a bug in the vector code and the length ends up being wrong then this push operation which transfers ownership can end up say overwriting some existing element of the vector right and then that's a that could be a a memory a memory flaw a memory problem Um, but the nice thing is that vec is a pretty simple type um, it's built. Uh, it, it's built on some modules which have a very, which have very simple job to do, right? And so that is a small piece of code that we can audit to ensure that the vector is using its memory correctly. And once we have verified by hand by inspection uh, that the vector is using its memory correctly, then we can trust the types of the vector's methods to ensure that the users will always use it correctly, right? So the users have no concern. It's only we who implement the vector who are responsible for this extra level of vigilance and making sure that, that, we're, that, that we're getting the memory right. So, so the type system can be and is being formally verified, but the, but the libraries need to be hand audited? What, what's vector written in? Is it written in Rust? Victor vector is written in Rust, right? And that's the key, right? Is that unsafe unsafe code in Rust is sort of this escape hatch that lets you do things that you know as the programmer, that you as the programmer know are correct, but that the type system can't recognize as correct, mm. right? Um, so, for example, implementing vector is one of them, right? So, vector itself is written in Rust. It uses uh, selected unsafe code, right? And... Uh, and so this is exactly what um, the Rust Belt project is is tackling, uh, is that in order to really make meaningful statements about Rust, you're going to have to actually be able to handle unsafe code mm-hmm. because the the primitive operations of Rust, you know, like the synchronization operations, right? The stuff that, you know, implements mutexes, the stuff that implements, you know, inter-thread communication channels, um, or, or, you know, the basic memory 
management things, right? That, that get memory, that obtain memory, free memory for a vector's buffer, or that, that free uh, a vector's buffer when, when the vector is disposed of. Or, uh, you know, the I.O. operations that say, look, we're going to read memory, we're going to read the contents of a file or data from a socket into this memory and without, you know, wiping out random other stuff around mm. it, right? All of those things are sort of, uh, they're, they're code that, that no type system can really, well, yeah, I think you can say that. They're, they're primitive operations, and so no type system can really say what they do. Um, but you can use unsafe code to, and make sure that you use them correctly. And then, assuming that your unsafe code is right, you can build well-typed things on top of those that are safe to use. And so this, this two-level structure of having unsafe code at the bottom and then having typed code on the top is what... Um, allows people to have to have some confidence in the system. And so uh, the Rust Belt people actually want to understand the semantics of unsafe code and actually spell out uh, what the requirements are in order to use these features safely. And then they want to verify that Rust standard library does indeed use them correctly. So they're really going for the, for the whole enchilada. Um, they want to really put all of Rust on, uh, on a firm theoretical foundation mm. and it's and it's really exciting and the trade-off like as as a user of the language it seems to make sense to me so you're saying like rather than you know needing to to audit my code to make sure these issues don't exist i can trust that the system has been formally verified except for these unsafe primitives which have been audited themselves yeah yeah well yeah what, the way basically if you don't use unsafe code then the compiler prevents all undefined behavior, prevents all data races, prevents all uh, memory errors, right? If you don't use unsafe code, you are safe. If you do use unsafe code, you are, or unsafe features, you are responsible for making sure that you meet the additional requirements that they impose above and beyond the type system. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, and so either you can figure out how to fit your problem into uh, the into the safe type system, and the nice thing the nice thing about Rust is that the safe type system is actually really good and quite usable. And most programs do not need to resort to unsafe code. Um, so you can either you can either work in that world, which is what I almost always try to do, um, or if you really need if there's something if there's a primitive that you really know is correct, but that Rust that the type system can't handle, then you can drop down to unsafe code and you can implement that. Um, and one of the things we we one of the strategies that we emphasize in the unsafe chapter of the book, it's the very last chapter after we presented everything else, is one of the strategies that we encourage people to use is to um, make sure that, or to try to design interfaces such that once the types check, that you know that all of your unsafe code is, is, is a-okay, Right? And then that means that you've exported a safe interface to your users. And so if you have an unsafe trick that you want to use, you isolate that unsafe trick in one module right, that has a safe interface to the outside world. And then you can go ahead and use that technique uh, and not worry about its safety anymore. You use, it, use, it, use, the, use the module, um, and then the module's own types ensure that it's okay. The unsafe code doesn't escape, right? Uh, exactly. 
exactly. It sounds similar to the to the idea, like you know, people be writing some Haskell function that claims to do no side effects, but for performance reasons, maybe it's actually doing some sort of, um, you know, generating a random number. Or right. maybe that's a bad example, but uh, it, it's totally hidden from the user, right? Yes, it, it acts it acts pure from the outside. Whatever that, may happen. Yeah, that's that's a good example. That's a good example because because the question comes, the question arises: Is it really? pure from the outside. If they did it right, if they mm-hmm. really actually kept all of the, the statefulness local and isolated so that you can't tell from the outside, then everything's fine. The people and the, the, the rest of the, the, the whoever's using that uh, from the outside can use it and not worry about it. And they get the performance and they don't have to worry about uh, you know the, the details. But then inside, the people who wrote that code, are they have extra responsibilities. Right, mm-hmm. and and the the normal Haskell guarantees of statelessness don't don't apply to them because they've they've broken the rules and or they they've stepped outside the rules and they are they're now responsible. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, the type system of Rust, and uh, actually, it has a lot of a lot of features that that I guess you wouldn't expect from something that's well, maybe I didn't expect it. It has a lot of functional uh, feeling features. Oh yeah, you know I'm really glad I'm really glad that you brought that up because I mean so I've talked about safety, and I think I've talked about performance, mm-hmm. right? But but Rust, the nice thing, the really nice thing about Rust is that it is not by any means a hair shirt, right? It is actually really comfortable to use. It has a very powerful uh, generic type system. Um, the trait system is a lot like type classes in Haskell. If you, if you've used type classes in Haskell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, everybody uses type classes in Haskell, whether they know it or not, right? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so, so Rust has traits. Um, the whole standard library is designed around uh, you know that those generics and those traits, and it puts them to full use. And it's actually a super comfortable system to use. Um, I did a tutorial at, at OSCON uh, in Austin last last um, last May, uh, where. Uh, we went through, you know, to the extent that you can, three hours, um, writing a networked video game. And so that involved 3D graphics. It involved a little bit of networking. Um, and, uh, and it involved uh, some game logic, right? And, uh, the, and when I was working on, obviously, I had to have the game ready for the talk. And, um, you know, I... I I didn't, it took me, it took me, I I put it off. And so I had to do the last stages of development in a rush and it was fantastic. Mm. It was like I had, I had wings or something because once I'd gotten something written down, right. Once I'd really gotten the types, Mm. right. Um, it was done. It was done. If it had been, if I had been working in C++, I would have had to randomly take three hours out of the schedule to, to fix, to track something down uh, and debug it. Um, and uh, because it was rust, I just got to keep going forward, forward, forward. And so it was just like uh, really great progress. And, and rust has all these sort of batteries included kind of things. Like there's a, there's a crate out there called Serdy, which is for serializing, deserializing, serializer, deserializer. And it is a very nice collection of, of formats. Like there's JSON, there's a binary format, there's XML, there's there's you know a bunch of other stuff, right? And then a set of Rust types that can be serialized: string, hash table, vector, um, you know what what have you. 
Um, and it, it's Sudi is very carefully constructed so that uh, if you have any type which it knows how to serialize or deserialize, then you can use that with any format that it knows how to read or write. So you just like, you know, pick something off of this list and then pick something off of that list and you're immediately ready to go nice. uh, for sending something across the network, right? Uh, and, and in fact, it will actually, you can actually, and that naturally, if you define your own types, you can specify how they should be serialized or deserialized, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, you define your own custom struct and say, well, here's how. Okay. But the thing is, that's real boilerplate stuff, okay. right? So there is actually this magic thing that you can say, you can slap on the top of your own type definition. You can say, derive, serialize, and deserialize. And what that does, I mean, I, I guess Haskell has something like this too, uh, that automatically generates the methods. It looks at the type and automatically generates the methods to serialize and deserialize that type. And so it is super easy to get your stuff ready to communicate across the network. Um, and so for, you know, for communicating people's moves and communicating the state of the board, um, that was, it was just, just a, a blast because there was all of this sort of, uh, boilerplate stuff that I didn't have to worry about. Um, and those are just the kind of power tools. And I think, uh, wonderful. just, just for a callback, I think that that's like generic, uh, derivation and I, I did have a i did have uh miles on the show earlier who uh he wrote something similar for uh scala and yeah haskell has it uh i think it was originally called scrap your boilerplate but yeah a uh, very cool feature right a lot of boilerplate can be removed by by things like that yeah scrap your boilerplate is done within the haskell mm -hmm. type system uh if i if i remember that paper right um and and uh Surdy is doing a little bit of you know procedural macro kind of I'm actually going to exactly looks at your type definition and decides what to do with it. Um, and I, I wonder maybe that stuff could be done in a scrap your boilerplate style. I it's, I, I can't, I don't understand scrap your boilerplate well enough to say, um, but yeah, it's, it's that, it's mm -hmm. that style of thing. And yeah. And it's, and those are, those are just wonderful power tools. One thing. So it sounds, I think you're making a good argument. So rust, you know, apparently hard to learn. This is what I've heard. I, how, however, once you learn <laughs> yeah. it, there's there's a superpower. Uh, it's, yeah. So is this superpower applicable to to non, you know, C plus plus devs? Um, is is this a useful skill for somebody who's like throwing up web services or? I think so. Um, so I work in. Okay. So so uh, you had you had Edwin on talking about Idris, and Edwin made a comment that I want to push back on. He said, um, "I don't think." that types really help people eliminate bugs that much because um, unit tests are still useful. Um, and uh, so I work, uh, right now I work in the, the developer tools part of Mozilla, and we have a JavaScript front end. Uh, the, 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 the user interface for the developer tools in Firefox are, is, is written, they're, they're written themselves in JavaScript. Mm. And it's a React Redux um, app, basically, um, that talks over a JSON-based protocol to a server that runs in the debug e and looks at the web page for you. Um, and uh, we are... Uh, I'm, I'm proud to say that my colleagues uh, are enthusiastic about the potential for, for types and, the, and they, they really see the value of static typing 
and mm-hmm. we are um, more and more bringing um, we're using uh, flow types in JavaScript. We're, we're bringing flow types into our code base, um, but it's not done, right? We haven't pushed them all the way through. There's plenty of untyped code still because um, fl- fl- JavaScript flow types let you type one file, but leave the rest of the file, leave the system, un- leave the rest of the system untyped. And so you can mm-hmm. gradually introduce types to more and more of your code as you go. Um, so, so we're in that process and of the bugs that I end up tracking down, um, I think, I, mean, I don't want to put a number to it because I, I, mean, I haven't been like, keeping statistics, but it feels like uh, uh, at least half of them uh, would have been caught immediately by static typing. Right. I've heard I've heard people say this when uh, when TypeScript, like moving to TypeScript, which is similar, right? That that like often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same idea. Often they found a yeah, like a, a you know not a super obscure bug, but like a little bit, like a, a corners where yeah. things would go wrong. That the type system was like, "What are you doing here?" Well, well you, you, the thing is, the thing is, I think people like the people who work in Haskell or um, you know, or certainly somebody who works on Idris. I don't think they really know what the JavaScript world is like, right? Java, it's just its just insane what people do. Okay, in JavaScript, if you typo the name of a property on an object, right? It's just a typo, right? You, you capitalize it wrong or something. Um, that That's not an error. JavaScript just gives you undefined as the value. And then undefined just shows up at some random point in your program, Right, and so until you have like complete unit test coverage of every single line, you don't even know whether you've got typos. Yeah. That's crazy, right? That is just not what humans are good at, and it's exactly what computers are good at. And so to to not to, to make that to put that on the human programmers' shoulders is doesn't make any sense. Um, so now to be fair to Edwin, yeah. like. I- he does have t-shirts that say it compiles ship it. So like, (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, that was, that was a, I thought that was a really good podcast. And I like, like I said, we're we're all fans of, or we're all really curious about Idris. Um, So yeah, but I think, I think, I think, I think that uh, we don't want to undersell the benefits of static typing. And so back to your question for people who aren't doing systems programming, why would they be interested in rust? Uh, Rust is just a really good productive language to work in. Um, It will make you worry about a bunch of things that maybe you thought you shouldn't have to think about. Um, But uh, in retrospect, I kind of feel like I'm, happy to have those things brought to my attention um, like like for example the the uh, at the very beginning i talked about um you know how uh data structures the method of a data structure will sort of bring it out of a coherent state and then put it back into a coherent mm-hmm. state you don't want to make sure that you don't observe it in the midst of that process well you know you can get those kinds of bugs um even in single threaded code Right, you can have one function which is working on something and modifying something, then it calls something else, calls something else, goes through a callback, and you have you know several call frames, right? And then suddenly you have something that tries to use the very data structure that you were operating on at the beginning, mm-hmm. but you weren't aware of it, and so this this you know you, basically nobody knows that they're trying to read from the data structure that they're in the middle of modifying, um, and that's uh, something it's called the um, 
uh, iterator invalidation. Um, in C++, it's undefined behavior. Uh, in Java, you get a concurrent modification exception, like and I just mentioned this to a Java programmer, and he's like, oh, yeah, CMEs, that's the, you know, they, they had a name for them, right? They knew. Um, and th that's also, that's a, totally a single-threaded programming error, and that's also prevented by Rust's type system. So I feel like Rust's types actually have a lot of value, even for single-threaded code, which is not performance-sensitive, but it's just really nice to have um, a... It, it's really got your back in terms of letting you think or making sure that your program works the way you think it does. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it has a lot of applica applicability as a general purpose programming language. And um, hey, the one thing we didn't talk about, but I think that you touched on briefly at the beginning was to do with security. So we talked about data races, mm -hmm. but you also mentioned security. Right. Yeah. Um, so most security, well, sorry, there are lots of different kinds of security holes. Um, and according to the collected data, uh, there are a few people who collect statistics on the published security vulnerabilities and sort of what category they fall into. You know, is it SQL injection? Is it um, cross-site scripting? Is it, you know, they, they sort of categorize them. And the category that I'm interested in, in this, for this particular case, is the uh, 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 memory corruption, memory, memory, memory errors. And those have been a consistent, you know, 10, 15% of of the all the security vulnerabilities being published altogether, right? Um, and so there's still uh, a very big issue. And most of the time, almost all the time, what's happening there is you've got um, a buffer overrun, or you've got a use after free, um, or you've got a, some other kind of dynamic memory management error, um, which normally would result in a crash. But in the hands of a skilled um, exploit author. Um, can be used to take control of the machine because, and so, so you, after you have seen enough of these attacks, you start to feel like pretty much any book could be uh, exploited with enough ingenuity, mm -hmm. right? So, like it turns out, like that, that, I can't find this post anymore, but the the Chrome security team, Google's Google's Chrome browser's security team had a blog post about just about. Security errors caused by integer overflows. Mm -hmm. integer, integer overflow sounds so innocent, yeah. right? I mean, uh, but it turns out that if that integer is the size of something, you are ninety percent of the way to perdition, right? Uh, because basically, you can you can make it think that something is much bigger than it actually is in memory, and then you've got access to all kinds of stuff you shouldn't have access to, and you're you know you're you're really you're you're out of the you you've broken out of jail. Um, and uh, so, yeah. So, so, so having having a type system, so having a type system which prevents memory errors and which basically for, makes sure statically that you're not going to um, that your program doesn't behave in an undefined way, uh, really does close off a very significant um, uh, opportunity for security holes. And uh, one of the one of the quotes we open up one of the chapter quotes we open up the book with was a, a tweet by uh, Andy Wingo, who is a, a great JavaScript hacker um, and a great free software hacker. And he his tweet was simply um, uh, basically there was a bug in a true type parser, right? A font parser, mm -hmm. and that was one of the bugs that was used to break into the machines that were controlling the Iranian. 
um, nuclear uh, purification facilities. Oh, I didn't know that. What what was that? What was that called? Um, uh, Stuxnet, uh, right? Yeah, Stuxnet. Yeah, that basically it was built around a flaw in TrueType, right? So, TrueType, it's a font parser. TrueType is security sensitive code. So basically, all code is security sensitive. <laughs> There's no longer you can no longer say, oh, you know, it's just graphics code. You know, it's not. It's not true. If if you're writing, you know, if you're if you're writing C code and it's you know got control of memory and it's doing pointer arithmetic, you've got to be on your toes, and the standard is perfection. And so Rust, like same as a data race, it, it takes a certain class of these vulnerabilities off the table. Yeah, actually, it takes um, in uh, Rust without unsafe code. If your program types, then we are saying it will not exhibit undefined behavior. And undefined behavior is like often the... is is yeah is often the root of the security hole. Awesome. Um, so we're we're reaching the end of our time here. Uh, one thing sure. I uh, one thing when I was googling you that I found is your uh, is your Red Bean software site. And oh, sure. I, <laughs> I actually ended up forwarding this uh, to a couple of my my friends. It says on it. Uh, it to all intents and purposes, it appears you have a consulting company that, that does not sell software. Is, is that correct? <laughs> well, so that, that's, first of all, that's really, really old. My friend Carl Fogel and I, uh, we ran a little company called, um, called Cyclic Software, and we were selling um, CVS support. Um, we were the first group to distribute network transparent CVS. We, we didn't write it, but uh, somebody else wrote it, and they said they didn't want responsibility for it. And so we were the ones who were distributing it. And so that we're, I'm kind of proud of that because it was Network Transparent CVS that was really the first uh, version control system that open source used to, to, to collaborate on a large scale. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, and then got replaced by Subversion and Git and, and Mercurial. Uh, but but Network Transparent CVS was was really the, how things got started. Um, so yeah, so so we had Cyclic Software, and then we we decided we didn't want to run it anymore. We couldn't run it anymore, and so we sold it to a friend. And we realized we had to change our email addresses. We had to tell everybody, "Don't email us at you know Jim B at Cyclic anymore." Uh-huh. And you know that's kind of a bummer. We realized that we were going to be changing our email addresses every time we changed jobs. So we resolved to create a company whose sole purpose was never to have any monetary value. <laughs> Right, so we would never have to sell it, and so we could keep a stable email address for the rest of our lives. It's, I mean, it's a vanity domain, and lots and lots of people have vanity domains. So, but but our joke is that it's a it's a company whose purpose is never to have any value. Yeah, I found on the front page it says, "Let me read this: By buying our products, you will receive nothing of value. But on the other hand, we will not claim that you have received anything of value. In this, we differ from other software companies who insist, in face of abundant evidence to the contrary, that they've sold you a usable and beneficial item." <laughs> yeah that's that's carl <laughs> well it's been a lot of fun uh jim thank you uh so much for your time yeah thanks for having me it was fun and i, I enjoyed your book uh I'll, I'll get through it eventually i think i'm on chapter four i'm gonna keep working <laughs> yeah 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 stick with it through the traits and generics chapter because once you've gotten to traits and generics then that's really where you've really got everything you need to know to really read the documentation and understand what you're looking at. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and we're really sorry. It's chapter 11. We tried to make it as fast as possible. But... <laughs> uh, no, it's all good. All right. Take care. Take care. <laughs>